0: So, the Antarctic Treaty of 1959 has argued being a remarkable geopolitical success and achievement. Lawrence Gold, a former president of the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, made the comment some years ago now that, and I'm quoting this, it is a document unique in history which may take its place alongside the Magna Carta and other great symbols of man's quest for enlightenment and order. In your opinion, Professor Dodds, how significant is the treaty as both a symbol of and model for peaceful working and collaboration between nations? And perhaps firstly, how exactly does it affect that collaboration?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say about the Antarctic Treaty was that it was negotiated in the midst of the Cold War. So it's no mean achievement, notwithstanding the fact that nobody lives in the Antarctic in terms of human populations that uh, the United States, the Soviet Union, and a number of other partners were able to uh, agree a treaty for the peaceful governance of the Antarctic continent and surrounding ocean. Uh, in terms of uh, the big, big achievements of the treaty, uh, you know, one should point out that it was the first treaty to declare an entire continent a zone of peace and cooperation. So, when Lawrence Gould says that the Antarctic Treaty will take its place alongside the Magna Carta, he is, on the one hand, exaggerating, but on the other hand, he is quite right to draw attention to a treaty that's proven to be remarkably durable.
0: And and as a model for other areas, uninhabited areas?
1: It has provided a model for other inhabited, uninhabited rather, areas, uh, outer space, the moon. Uh, the ocean's floors, for example, have all been inspired in part by the Antarctic Treaty. But moreover, if you think about the other zones of peace and cooperation that have been declared, for example, in the South Atlantic, in the Indian Ocean, in the Pacific, they've also been inspired by the Antarctic Treaty's provision uh, regarding, for example, no military activity and also no use of the Antarctic for nuclear explosions, nuclear testing.
0: There's some discussion now also about the Antarctic Treaty being used as an analogue in the Arctic. Would you have some comments on that?
1: I'm a little bit sceptical of that, I think for a number of reasons. First of all, the Antarctic and the Arctic are very different geographical environments. One is, of course, predominantly a continental space, the other is a frozen ocean, although with sea ice thinning, increasingly less of a frozen ocean. Secondly, the Antarctic Treaty was negotiated in the late 1950s. You had effectively 12 participants. And the Antarctic, even in those days, was still pretty remote from global attention. That's no longer the case. So you're dealing with a very different kind of environment. You're dealing with a very different kind of time frame. And you're also dealing with a very different kind of sovereignty position. In the Antarctic, you have seven claimant states. And very few other states acknowledge the legitimacy of those claims. In the Arctic, you have five so-called coastal states where sovereignty is by and large agreed, but you also have this situation in the high Arctic where no one country or group of countries enjoys exclusive sovereignty. So when people say the Antarctic Treaty provides an analogue for the Arctic, I'm afraid I'm a little bit sceptical. I think it's more complicated than that.
0: And how important is the Antarctic um, Treaty to you as a researcher of geopolitics and also as someone who has conducted um, research or at least visited the Antarctic continent on a number of occasions?
1: Yeah. I think the first thing to say is anybody who's interested in the geopolitics of the Antarctic has to start with the Antarctic Treaty. It provides, in a sense, the foundation for, for everything that really follows. Because if you're interested in governance or the way in which, for example, the Antarctic has been uh, environmentally managed or the way in which science has been facilitated, then the Antarctic Treaty is the starting point. Subsequently, as we know, the Antarctic Treaty has been built upon uh, by various protocols and conventions and so on and so forth, agreed measures. Um, but we always seem to come back to that remarkable treaty uh, of the 1st of December, 1959. What difference does it make that I've been there? Well, for one thing, I think you, you appreciate the scale of the place. Uh, I've only ever travelled to the Antarctic Peninsula and some of the surrounding uh, islands. Very conscious of the fact that I've not seen uh, 90% of the Antarctic continent. You're also extremely conscious of the fact of how um, fragile, I suppose, human inhabitation of the continent is. Uh, We are talking about uh, a ring of scientific stations. Uh, We're talking about, literally in the low thousands, the number of people, mainly scientists, who actually inhabit the continent. But I also think there's something quite special, particularly as a geographer, about visiting the kinds of places that you want to talk about and reflect on.
0: What challenges and threats do you think Professor Dodds are treating may face in the future, and how can the work of academics and other parties be directed to address these challenges?
1: Well, I think there are lots of different challenges. Um, Some of them are very specific to the the Antarctic and the surrounding ocean. Uh, These include, for example, illegal fishing in the Southern Ocean, Uh, despite the endeavours of the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Parties, it's still an issue uh, for all of us who are concerned with the region. Uh, There there is a real danger that fish stocks will simply collapse, and that will have dire implications for the broader ecosystem. Secondly, we have mounting tourism. Uh, Fifty years ago, tourism was virtually unheard of. We now have something like 40,000 visitors per year. And although the numbers are comparatively modest for the scale of the place concerned, uh, no doubt you recall, as others will, recent stories about some ships sinking, running aground, uh, it raises very obvious concerns uh, regarding uh, how one rescues stranded tourists. Antarctica does not have the kind of search and rescue infrastructure that other places might take for granted. We also have comparatively new developments, such as bioprospecting, whereby um, parts of the environment are taken and then used for, commercially, uh, for commercial purposes. That raises interesting issues about um, the exchange, for example, scientific information. I mean, would you exchange scientific information with another party if you thought it had commercial value? I mean, whenever one commercialises something, clearly you uh, unleash different sets of pressures. More generally, of course, uh, if we think about uh, global environmental change, clearly we could argue the greatest threat to Antarctica is humankind and certain kind of models of industrial and urban development. Politically, uh, the Antarctic Treaty is in fairly robust health, but in the recent past there have been debates about uh, who owns the Antarctic who should govern the Antarctic. And inevitably, whenever you deal with a treaty, you have to remember that, we sh- uh, that there are always third parties, people or states, rather, or organisations that are not signatory to the treaty, don't necessarily accept those principles or respect mm-hmm. them, and how does an organisation uh, that enjoys relatively broad legitimacy handle those kind of, as I say, third parties?
0: It seems the Antarctic Treaty has been well-recognised and acclaimed among scientific communities. Would you say the Treaty has received the public recognition that it deserves?
1: I think part of the problem is is that the vast majority of the British, let alone uh, anybody else's public, uh, would not be aware of the Antarctic Treaty. I think there are a number of reasons for this. First of all, I suspect scientists are not as good as they should be still in terms of public engagement and actually bringing that broader message uh, about why the Antarctic Treaty is very special and how it has facilitated an extraordinary amount of international scientific cooperation. But I think there's another factor, which is simply, and this frustrates me enormously, is that whenever the polar regions are mentioned in public culture, inevitably it seems to be regard, revolve around rather, stories about Scott, Shackleton, and long-lost explorers. And I think the difficulty we have is that as long as there is this kind of fixation with reassessing you know, why Scott uh, failed to return from the South Pole, the difficulty is that people don't want to move on in terms of the historical narrative, and so we get stuck in 1912 and with dead Edwardian explorers. And what we really need to do is then just move ahead approximately a century and actually reflect on how the Antarctic has changed and how, in a sense, Scott and Shackleton do belong to a a longer narrative. But it's a narrative that also takes into account more recent developments. But I suspect if you said to a publisher, here's a book on the Antarctic Treaty, here's a book on Robert Scott, which one do you think is going to captivate public opinion? It's likely to be Scott.
0: And finally, Professor Dodds, as someone who will be participating in the Cumberland Lodge Conference on the Antarctic Treaty, Um, which will be taking place in June as one of our speakers. Um, I'd like to ask you, why do you think a conference celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Antarctic Treaty is important?
1: Well, organisers like anniversaries, and the 50th anniversary um, I think is an appropriate one to reflect on um, the achievements of the Antarctic Treaty. It is a remarkable treaty. Uh, Certainly when I give my presentation to the conference, I'm not going to say it's all wonderful. I'm going to try and convey also about how the treaty nearly didn't happen. So I want to try and introduce a note of caution and to emphasise its precariousness. But on the other hand, it would be utterly churlish not to admit that the Antarctic Treaty was and is remarkable for what it achieved. I think we should be very, very grateful that we had a series of people prepared to come to Washington in October 1959 to work long, long hours for weeks to come up with a remarkably simple treaty that has endured, that actually created precedents like the world's first nuclear-free zone that encouraged international scientific cooperation, and ultimately that attracted a large number of other countries to sign up to the treaty and its principles. So I welcome the opportunity to participate.
0: Well, thank you very much, Professor Dodds, for your insightful comments and reflections there, and we look very forward to hearing more from you at the Cumberland Conference on the 10th of June. Thank you. Thank you.